From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Thanks for being with us on this uh, cloudy Monday afternoon. Well, we're going to talk now uh, more about housing, but the housing shortage, specifically looking at unnecessary paperwork. And some new numbers have been released from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, taking a look at what specifically civic governments can do to address the housing shortage. And joining me to talk more about this is Emily Boston, a policy analyst at the CFIB. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me out, Joe. This is looking specifically at that the municipal level of government, and we know there can be lengthy delays, there can be a lot of paperwork, but what were you looking at, looking at those things and housing supply? Yeah, so this report is part of CFIB's overarching 15th annual Red Tape Awareness Week, where we look at uh, the types of administrative burden, paper paperweight, Uh, confusing rules and regulations um, that Canadians experience every single day from all levels of government. Um, And so we wanted to look into the housing shortage and how red tape is really um, impacting and contributing to that. Um, And we did so by looking at what the permitting requirements and costs are um, for the average Canadian's uh, $20,000 bathroom renovation. Um, so what's something that should be a simple task, we found in our report, um, has uh, a lot more costs and paperwork associated with it than you'd expect. Um, and it really goes to show you that if it's this difficult to do something as simple as upgrading a powder room, um, we've got a long way to go to address the red tape challenges um, that we need to if we're going to um, address the, the gap in housing stock that we have across the country. So what did you find then, and using that example, the $20,000 renovation project, did you find that that some cities, some municipalities were doing better than others, or was there a wide range? It was certainly a mixed bag, but we did have, um, we did have a clear front one runner and not a good one. Uh, Vancouver, by far, had the highest permitting costs um, as well as the highest document requirements. Uh, in Vancouver, we found that it costs a little over $2,000 um, in permitting expenses for a 20000 reno project. So that's 10% of the cost added on, which is very substantial. Um, on the lowest end of the, the spectrum, um, Charlottetown, it only cost $180. But if we look at um, who came second, which was Edmonton, there's still over $1,000 difference between what their permitting costs are for the same build there. And that's just the, the second out of all the other municipalities surveyed. So it really goes to show you that uh, here in D.C. and Vancouver specifically, um, we have a long way to go to address not just the paperweight, paperweight burden of all of these different permitting documents that were required, but the associated cost to make sure that we're in line with other municipalities across the country. And I think you touched on this, but were you looking at this at a specific time frame? And I asked that because with Vancouver coming out on top, but it's very interesting, I think, to look at the the amount it costs and the time it takes, because that was something that the current council campaigned on, saying we're going to bring this down uh, to make it much a much shorter time period and to get rid of that red tape. So this report measured specifically uh, the cost and the number of documents. But one of our key asks for municipal governments and recommendations is to review their existing permitting and approval process to make sure that they do have transparent and timely deliveries on the services that they're promising to 
uh, their constituents. And I'm happy to report that we do have um, one municipality in BC that is very much paving the way, um, and that's the city of Richmond. Um, they actually are have uh, instated um, some new automated processes that will make the permitting process smoother, um, and it allows for real-time tracking of permit applications. Um, and this is really setting a gold standard in BC and across the country um, for what municipalities should be striving towards to make sure that um, the amount of time, energy, and money that regular British Columbians need to sink into these uh, projects just to be able to add a little bit more space under their home um, doesn't get too excessive. And when you look at the number of documents, and again, looking at Toronto and Vancouver being the most burdensome uh, in terms of forms, permits, and, and I know that the Toronto example, uh, I believe the number was that uh, you'd have to have 10 documents before you could even begin the renovations. Uh, do those numbers vary? Like you said, the price certainly varies looking at the different uh, jurisdictions across the country. Do those numbers widely vary as well? Oh, absolutely. It, it's it's certainly different depending on where you are. I mean, I use Edmonton as the example of the second uh, highest cost, but compared to Vancouver, they only have five permit requirements compared to our 11. Um, the same is in Calgary. Um, and when we look out to the east, there's a little bit of difference, um, six in Halifax, six in St. John's. Um, but it's really Toronto and Vancouver that are right out front with 10 and 11 permitting requirements. Um, which is unfortunate because these are also, you know, the cities that have uh, the lowest housing supply right now and that are having the, the biggest challenges with addressing the demand for housing. Um, and so it's unfortunate because we are gunning towards goals that um, we're probably going to fall short of and really addressing our red tape burdens is probably the best way um, that we're going to be able to make those small changes to move these processes along faster to make sure that more Canadians have homes in the next few years. Because even though this study used the example of a bathroom renovation, can, can you make that direct link that if it's that difficult to renovate a bathroom, to do a $20,000 renovation, then it's not as though uh, getting a laneway house built or building, uh, subdividing a property or even building a house, it's not as though that process is going to be more streamlined if we're talking about the same administration? Exactly. I mean, it really is a... It's a microcosm of what these larger processes would look like. Certainly a bathroom renovation, upgrading a powder room, that's small beans. We recognize that if you're going to you know, build a full laneway house, there's going to be a lot more permit, permits and costs required to do so and a lot different um, expectations. However, um, it really just puts into perspective if a project this small for an average Canadian takes this much work, this much time, this much paperwork, Think about what a small business owner is dealing with. Think about when we when we uh, upgrade and upscale these projects to bigger levels. Um, and this this goes the same for the contractors that are involved as well. CFIB represents many uh, uh, construction companies across Canada, and they also are beholden to these uh, red tape burdens. You know, they also are on the hook for delayed timelines and delayed payments. So. Um, it really is an issue that touches every Canadian, whether we recognize it or not. 
And those numbers are in this report as well. When we talk about small business construction and uh, because I think, and again, given the example of renovating a bathroom, that would be somebody is not a large project, like, like you said. But when you look at the number of businesses, construction businesses, I think in the report, it says 82% of construction businesses are small and mid-sized. What does that do to, to construction businesses that maybe are ready to go, are trying to manage their workload and get caught up in this red tape? Well, I, I'm glad you asked because, you know, they have a, a huge feat ahead of them as as a sector, right? We have a long way to go in terms of building the amount of houses that we need over the next 10 years or so. Um, but there's already so much stress on that sector. They have, you know, labor shortages. They already have so many burdens with permitting and approval processes. But when you think about what happens when these approvals are delayed, um, this results in delayed projects. And it also means delayed compensation for them. So it leaves them on the hook um, while they're waiting for governments to approve processes and um, it just extends their timelines generally. So when you think about all the compounding confluence of factors that are really uh, pressing on the construction sector right now, um, they too want these burdens to be alleviated. They don't want their clients and their customers to have to wait and be frustrated and submit more paperwork, paperweight than necessary. I also found it interesting that the report not only looks at the amount of documents, the number of documents and the process that people will go through to do a renovation, to do to, to get those permits, but it also looks at the ease at which you can find out what you need, which I know can be hugely uh, complicated. Yeah. I've, I've talked even anecdotally to people in Vancouver that uh, have been sent from counter to counter and, and it's just a labyrinth of... Of, of, to try and get through it to get that. Uh, but but you talk about that uh, Calgary, uh, I, I answered your question quickly. Um, the city of Moncton has an actual, uh, a step-by-step checklist that people can do. Uh, what, yeah. what did you find about the ease at which, even if it's a complicated process, the ease at which people can at least access how to do it? Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up because this is kind of an, an often overlooked part of the red tape process, and that's accessibility and the customer service that goes along with it. Um, it doesn't matter if you have the best information or the best process um, and everything in place, if people can't access it, if they don't know where to find it, um, if, if these uh, processes aren't, uh, you know, reported on enough and shared with everyday Canadians. Um, so... Part of Red Tape Awareness Week, what we typically track with the uh, annual Red Tape Report Card, um, is just how well these tools and resources are displayed um, and how easy it is for the average person to access it. And like you said, yes, um, different places um, are leading the charge, like Edmonton, um, implementing a residential permit guide. Um, So that just gives uh, users a better ease of access to information and gives them things like step-by-step checklists, you know. So those are things that make this process easier for people because, let's be real, Canadians and small business owners do not have time to be buried in paperwork. And when they're already spending in this example, $20,000 on a renovation project, adding another $2,000 and goodness knows how much time, stress, um, and just just general like confusion with the paperwork process uh, really doesn't help anybody. It uh, certainly does not. Emily, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And check out Red Tape Awareness Week throughout the week if you're interested in what we're doing next.
Some new numbers were released earlier today. A record-breaking 563 people in this province received organ transplants in 2023. And another record that is the generosity of 160 deceased organ donors and their families, as well 77 living donors in this province helped save a life. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this and how organ donation has changed over over the years. Joining me to do that is Ed Fair, Provincial, uh, Provincial Operations Director with BC Transplant. Ed, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We also have on the line with us Ryan Burke, who is a resident of Lions Bay, also a lung transplant recipient. Ryan, thank you for taking some time as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. I want to get to Ryan in just a moment, but Ed, I was hoping you could start by talking a little bit about the fact that we are seeing those record numbers with people uh, being uh, donors. How has it changed or what do you think led to 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 563 people uh, getting transplants in 2023? Yeah, it's a fantastic number and uh, it, it really speaks highly of all of the healthcare professionals around the province who are involved uh, in organ donation and transplantation. You know, uh, there's, a, um, there's a, number of, um, a number of years ago, we looked at what successful organ donation organizations were doing around the world. And there were some things that we found in common. Um, and as a result, we've instituted those within the province. So for example, we have um, identified what we call physician champions. These are critical care physicians within the ICU, and that's where organ uh, donors are identified um, who um, are educated and um, provide education to their colleagues and to nursing staff about organ donation. And we've also embedded um, what do we call um, in-house coordinators, and these are um, uh, donor coordinators who, again, help educate at all levels of allied staff and physicians within hospitals. And the idea being is that we um, when we, we like to view organ donation as a part of quality end-of-life care. And having these individuals within the intensive care units and within critical care has really helped change the culture so that it is now viewed as something that uh, happens at the end of, uh, end of life. And it's uh, looking at the numbers too, just uh, amazing to see that. Ryan, I want to bring you on on this now. And again, a lung transplant recipient. And I mean, I can't even begin to try and understand what that was like for you getting the information, knowing that you needed a transplant and then waiting for one. But, But what has it been like for you since getting a lung transplant? Yeah, it's remarkable. It's better than I ever would have expected it would have been on the other side of it. Did you think much about organ donation before you became or found out that you would need a lung transplant? Yeah, I always uh, would check check the box on my driver's license uh, when I could, and I thought it would be a nice way to be able to help somebody out, maybe a few people out uh, after you go. So it was something that I thought was a good program, but I certainly never thought I'd be on the other end of it, the receiving end.
And, and was it quite uh, quick as far as uh, I did read a bit of, of your background story and that 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 you were in, I think it was December of 2022, uh, you were uh, going through a lot of this, uh, you were on medication and and I, th- I think at that point you knew that that your lungs were, were very compromised. Was it, it must have been though difficult to, to, to go from, from being very active and and that to find out that you needed that? For sure, I was always uh, always worked active on my feet um, in uh, construction, and I was like playing lots of sports and being outside. So it was a big a big surprise and uh, a big change in my day to day life. But it's pretty remarkable that I was able to face a uh, essentially incurable disease, and uh, through all the help from be the PH clinic and the organ transplant team and just all the nurses and health workers in general, I was really only uh, out of commission for about two years, you know, with uh, fighting the disease and then recovering from the transplant. So all in all, it was really just a a short little blip for such a serious uh, condition and procedure. Hmm. And Ed, when you hear that, what goes through your mind? Because I think that to have somebody refer to that as as a blip, it's it's perhaps comforting for people, or or, or shows just how far the research and the procedures have come. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean that that we have five hundred and sixty three stories like that this last year because of the generosity of all of the donors we have. We we hear these stories all the time from recipients. Um, you know, this is end-stage organ failure, and you know, with dialysis, with kidneys, you have the opportunity to go on to dialysis, and that's a bridge to transplant. But with the other organs, you don't have that luxury. So it is a matter of life and death. And you know, one minute you are on a wait list, um, you get that phone call, and the next you um, are, are transplanted. So it's uh, it's a great news story. And like I said, it happened 563 times this year. Uh, Ryan mentioned there as well, uh, checking the box when getting your driver's license renewed, because I know we often talk about even the success and the fact that so many people have been given life-saving organ transplants. But is it still a challenge as far as making sure people know how easy it is and know that, that it's important that you declare that people know what your intentions are? It absolutely is. You know, there's several ways to register uh, to be an organ donor. We can, we have an online registry at www.transplant.bc.ca. Um, you can fill out a registration form at any service BC or ICBC driving center. Um, you can go onto our BC Transplant website, get a registration form, or call our office and we'll mail one out to you. Um, even um, and, and what we encourage is that once you fill that out, please have a conversation with your family and let them know that this is a decision that you've made. And Ryan, you mentioned too that uh, you had a very active life and I know you work in construction. Have you been able to return to pretty well, pretty well what you were doing before now that uh, you have the lung transplants and, uh, and that, part of the, uh, that part of it is behind you? Yeah, I've, I've maybe even been uh, <clears throat> more active uh, than before just uh, with a bit of a different perspective and trying to not take any of the physical abilities for granted. 
And do you talk to people about the importance? Like you said, you always made sure that you made it clear that that you were an organ donor. Do you talk more to people now about that, given your very, very personal experience with this? I think it's been pretty, pretty well implied with uh, all my friends and people I'm close with when they see me. They saw me when I was suffering and uh, some, some of them saw me in the hospital and now they see me on the other side, you know, going skiing all the time and hanging out with them, walking around in the forest. And uh, I think it's they just kind of can infer the, the importance and the gratitude of uh, or the, um, the impact that organ donation can have. And I'm, I'm sure they've all uh, understand that, how important it is now. And Ed, I wanted to ask you about one of the other numbers as well, talking about the uh, the 160 deceased organ donors and again, the appreciation that goes to people that make their decisions, their, their wants clear, talk to their families about this. But we also saw 77 living donors in 2023. Is that becoming more uh, talked about and, and something that people are making sure that, that, uh, that when that can happen, it is happening? Absolutely. Um, you know, with kidneys, particularly with kidneys, um, living donation would be um, almost the preferred method of, of transplant. We're looking at a program now we're calling Transplant First. And what we're looking at doing is um, for those individuals who have on, on renal failure but have not yet started dialysis, if they can identify a potential living donor for them, um, they can usually get transplanted before they have to start dialysis. So it's a it's an incredible benefit to the patient to be able to do something like that. So certainly a living donation is something that uh, we, we promote as much as possible. Hmm. And we know that it, it's not a cure, that it is a treatment and something that, that you then have to monitor. But is that becoming better as well as far as the drugs that people have to take to make sure the organs aren't rejected and that kind of thing? Yes, there's, there's all. That's one of the areas that is really moving forward quickly. It's better matching with uh, with donors and recipients, and improved immunosuppressive therapies. And those are the drugs that the recipients take. They're more specific now, so they are um, less. They're they're not a, as much as a hammer like they used to be, but they're very specific on parts of the immune system that they can shut down uh, to prevent rejection. And uh, Ryan, I'll just go back to you as well. What advice do you have or or what do you say to people when, uh, I mean, we're talking about this today because of these record numbers. You are here today because of of a transplant. Uh, What do you say to people uh, when people ask you about it? Uh, Yeah, well, I just say like like Dr. Yi said in his uh, release, who was my surgeon, uh, it takes over 150 healthcare professionals to... uh, to make that procedure happen. Uh, so for me, it's just the, the importance of all the nurses, surgeons, doctors, and everyone in the hospitals and medical systems that have, have been working so hard to break those records and have these great numbers this year. Um, it's really all comes down to them, you know, and every, the work they do every day, just saving lives. And, and that the reach of the donations and their work is, really immeasurable like uh, it saves my life directly but then that can have a massive positive impact on all the friends and family in my life and just people I would interact with uh, every day just strangers uh, it just increases the positivity that can go around.
Well, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you both of you so much for taking the time and sharing more about, uh, Ryan, what you've been through and, and uh, these numbers that uh, have just been released. Thank you both so much. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us, Joe. Well, if you are somebody who uses the bus or the sea bus, you know what a two-day strike can do as far as sending things into chaos in some parts of Metro Vancouver and uh, very, very difficult to get around for a lot of people. So one of the big questions being asked, is it possible we will see an escalation in that transit strike? What happens if the Labour Relations Board rules that those on strike can go ahead and picket SkyTrain stations? Well, joining me to talk a little bit more about this particular labor dispute is Barry Eidlin, an associate sociology professor at McGill University, also an expert when it comes to labor and social movements. Thank you so much for taking some time this afternoon. Great to be here, Joe. Thanks for having me. When you look at this job action and the fact that we've already seen the buses and C-Bus shut down for a 48-hour period, one of the big questions is how 180 workers can take labor action, can, can do this, can effectively shut down a major portion of a transit system. What do you say to that? Well, it's the result of two things, skill and solidarity. So these are supervisors who are responsible for a large number of buses. They're not the drivers themselves. And so when they walk off the job, that has these ripple effects. Uh, and there's others downstream from them who can't do their work. And so that, puts, that, that stalls that work. And that's why you see the system-wide shutdown. But a key component of this is the basic foundation of any labor movement, which is solidarity, which is the workers from the other, so the, the, the TransLink drivers and the um, uh, other bus drivers vowing not to cross picket lines. So that's sort of the ABCs of unionism is never cross a picket line. Right. And so we're, we're, we're seeing that in action. And that's why we have a group of 180 workers who are able to shut down uh, bus service uh, across because they, they occupy that critical position. And when we take a look at some of the issues or the main issue that has been talked about by the union, QP Local 4500, saying that the supervisors that are on strike or that have been taking the strike action, one of the big conditions or the big concerns is they say they are not being paid. They're not being compensated the same as supervisors that work in similar positions. Is that a fair argument or one that we see very often? Absolutely. Going back to the building blocks of, of the modern labor movement, you know, uh, not just the modern labor movement, but, you know, modern social movements like feminism. I mean, equal pay for equal work is something that just has a broad resonance. Um, and of course, what we're seeing here is a common side effect of that being a big issue, which is a fight over what constitutes equal work? Because, of course, the employer is countering that, well, these workers actually are doing something different. And that's often the case that it's not, you're not dealing with often with workers doing the exact same types of work, but they're doing similar work. And they're saying, you know, this is similar enough that we should be paid the same, you know, because, and that was, you know, for example, a lot of the 
disputes about gender pay equity are around this because women and men are often not doing the exact same work, but it's similar. And so we're trying to sort of have a fight over what constitutes comparable worth, essentially. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Right. And I know the company, one of the main points that the company is is putting forward is that making the argument that it's not actually similar work, that in the supervisors who are paid more are in positions where, in many cases, they would have about 30 reports, they manage people, they hire people, they fire people, whereas the supervisors in the union, the, ones, the 180 transit supervisors that are with this Q be local don't have direct reports and uh, the company has been saying that that's one of the the main things or the biggest differences in the two positions exactly and that's what that goes back to what i'm saying is that these sort of definitional struggles over what constitutes comparable work and so that's the company's position that they they they, they counter that you know they're not hiring and firing they're not they don't have as many reports um i have not seen specifics from the union about what their counter to that is but there's but you know again the issue here is that these definitional struggles are quite common and uh and regardless you know the issue here that we're dealing with is um you know a catch-up you know so that that you know the another the big issues here that the employer is saying well if they would just agree to the same percentage that all these other groups of workers did then you know the dispute would be over and that ignores the fact that this group of workers, uh, you know, regardless, I mean, they, they believe that they are falling behind and they have been falling behind. And so there needs to be a catch up amount that is exceeding that standard across the board percentage. Uh, and when we look at uh, a dispute like this, where clearly they are not able to reach a deal, the union saying the last collective agreement expired at the end of 2022. There were talks mm-hmm. that led right up until the, the two-day strike. Uh, we now have a special mediator who has been appointed. How likely is it, or, or have we seen other examples when two sides are so far apart? Can a special mediator actually find common ground and find an agreement that works? Yes, we've seen this. It's quite common, unfortunately, in a lot of these public sector negotiations. We saw it with the federal workers last year in the, the spring. We saw it here, in, I'm in Quebec, um, you know, with the public sector workers here, where there's this real intransigence on the part of employers and really dragging their feet, because it's important to recognize here that, you know, these workers don't want to be working under expired contracts. Like, it's not good for workers who work under expired contract. At a basic level, they're falling behind on their wages because they're not getting wage increases. But there's all sorts of issues that pile up that need to be addressed in terms of working conditions that need to be sort of just updated that aren't getting updated. And so when you have these delays, it's almost invariably the result of employer foot dragging. And, you know, here we have, you know, Vince Reddy is an experienced negotiator. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, you know, well-respected by all sides, which is uh, a, a good thing. Uh, you know, but, but ultimately, you know, what, what has to happen here is uh, in, it shows the importance of the strike, right, that, that it really res- have to resort to that level of pressure to get the employers to actually come to some sort of agreement. And that's really what we've been seeing over and over and over again, is that it's really only in the face of a serious strike threat that uh, employers will actually come to the table and come to a deal.
Can binding arbitration be helpful in scenarios like this, or is or is it something where the two sides are far apart and and would never would be unlikely to uh, agree to that anyway? I think that it's important not to rely on binding arbitration as a substitute for an effective strike threat, because what that often ends up doing is simply sweeping issues under the rug uh, and not actually um, getting them dealt with. And, you know, that, 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 you know, the, the reason that the right to strike is enshrined in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms as a basic freedom association is because of its critical role in getting parties to agreement and any, and efforts to, um, you know, to sidestep that, you know, while they may sort of in the short term deal with the immediate disruption, often end up causing more problems down the road. And one more more question about wages or about salaries, because the number, I think, is what is getting a lot of attention in that Coast Mountain Bus Company, uh, the company saying that QP's demands work out to about a 20 to 25 percent increase for all of the positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company saying they've put forward the author uh, the offer, sorry, that was closer to 13 uh, percent. People will hear those numbers. And there are not a lot of people, I think, that uh, have been given a 25 percent increase uh, ever, especially not recently. What do the numbers do as far as public support and 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 when you're dealing with numbers so high? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's important to keep this in perspective of issues that I think a lot of Canadians understand, which is that we've had this, well, we've had in the past few years, most significantly the cost of living crisis, but in the context of four decades of basically stagnant wage growth, and so we're in a moment now with, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic and then with the tighter labor market where workers are feeling that they can push back more and actually win more. And we've seen that with other groups of workers um, and, uh, you know, not, not just in Canada, but also in the U.S. as well, like with the auto workers strike and other, other, other groups. And so I think that, uh, and that has that can have ripple effects, right? And so I think that it. And so I think that there's one perspective that you could see where it's like, well, those workers are asking for something that I have never been able to get. So therefore, why should they even dare ask for that? Which is an, uh, an approach that you've seen certainly. But there's another way that it can go, which is that workers can see like, oh, okay, they're fighting to sort of play catch up after having all these decades of falling behind. That's a good thing because that means that maybe that could, that could also have ripple effects in my workplace too. Or that can encourage other workers to sort of, you know, fight for more as well. And so, you know, how that breaks down is, of course, uh, you know, a, a, it, it varies from situation to situation, but it's important to understand that it's not a sort of, it's not inherently going to be one way or the other. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are watching and waiting to see what happens next with this dispute. Barry Eidlin, thank you so much for taking the time today. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.